Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Saturday, January 22nd, for the reading of the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Perlmutter says he won't seek re-election by the Jeffco transcript. Brittany Pedersen to run for Perlmutter seat by the Jeffco transcript. Cowboy Poetry Gathering wraps up on high note by the Golden Transcript. GPD One Dead in Early Morning Blaze by the Golden Transcript. Arvada Rally's support for martial fire victims by the Arvada Press. And Arvada King Supers Union Workers Join Picket Line Share Perspectives by the Arvada Press. And following up with Miscellaneous articles. Perlmutter says he won't seek re-election. Democratic congressman to retire after seven terms by Bob Woolley. Representative Ed Perlmutter, Colorado's 7th District, is retiring from Congress at the end of his current term. In an announcement, Perlmutter said it was time to pass the torch to the next generation of leaders. Quote, after much thought and consideration, I have decided not to run for re-election. I have loved representing my friends, neighbors, and fellow Coloradans in the Congress of the United States of America. I will miss meeting voters of the new 7th District. It is truly the most beautiful district in America. It's got the best of Colorado in it. End quote, Perlmutter said. The statement also highlighted some of the work he's most proud of, including helping to expand renewable energy research at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, working to grow Colorado's aerospace community, including securing funding for the Orion Project and pushing forward with human space exploration and increasing awareness of the public safety risk a cash-only cannabis industry creates in Colorado and across the country. In a separate interview, Perlmutter said predictions of a red wave in the coming midterms didn't have an impact on his decision. He acknowledged that in midterms, it's difficult for the party holding the presidency to maintain control of the House, but said voters of the district are smart and will give their support to a thoughtful, well-informed candidate. He also believes voters will be able to see positive change happening all around the district when several infrastructure projects slated for the area are underway. I think it'll show that money is being put to good use for projects that will benefit them, district residents in the future, he said. Climate change and wildfire mitigation are at the top of the list of challenges Perlmutter says the district will continue to face. If the wind had turned just a bit south in the recent Boulder-Louisville fires, a lot of District 7 would have been in peril. And then you take the new district with all the forests and mountain areas, wildlife mitigation and prevention will be a big issue, he said. Education and post-COVID economic development are issues the district will continue to grapple with in the future. But in general, he thinks the state and country are in pretty good shape economically, all things considered. 
Colorado's unemployment is pretty good. The country gained 6.4 million jobs last year under Joe Biden. The stock market is up 10,000 points, which means $14 trillion. It's $1.4 billion per point, and wages are up, he said. A more intangible worry he has is for the state of democracy itself, cautioning that the country must stay vigilant in protecting the Constitution and rule of law. As for his own future, Perlmutter says he's still not sure. He said he's kitted around with the idea of practicing law again when his days in Congress are over. He's still licensed to do so in Colorado. He said he'll help others campaign as elections draw near, but for now, he still has three big things he wants to see through. One, I want to get that safe banking bill passed, he said, so that there's not so much cash in dispensaries. We've had robberies and murders. Two, I've been working on a bill I'm co-sponsoring with Zoe Lofgren from California on wildfire prevention and mitigation. End quote. The third thing on his agenda is an effort to get U.S. astronauts to Mars by 2033. As a member of the Science Committee, a return trip to the moon and subsequent trip to Mars are near and dear. It's going up. It's going to end up being something that I hope is international in scope, a public-private partnership led by NASA, he said. Similar to what we just did with the James Webb Telescope, where it was the Canadian Space Agency, European Space Agency, and NASA working together. Asked what he will miss the most about being in Congress, Perlmutter said his staff. I have the best staff in America, he said, and that's made our office one of the best offices in America for the people we represent. End quote. Brittany Pedersen to run for Perlmutter seat. Democratic State Senator Hopes to Keep Seat Blue by Bob Woolley. Brittany Pedersen, Democratic State Senator from District 22, wants to be the first congressional representative from a newly redrawn District 7 when the votes are counted in November. Pedersen, who served in both the Colorado House and Senate, announced her intent to run for the seat being vacated by Representative Ed Perlmutter just one day after he said he wouldn't seek re-election in this year's midterms. In her Twitter announcement, Peter Pedersen said, She's running to continue Perlmutter's legacy in the district. And in a subsequent interview, she said Perlmutter knows there are people ready to step up to fill the seat and that it's more competitive, but definitely winnable. These are the types of races that I have always run in. This is at a larger scale, but why I have always outperformed my district and won by significant margins is because of my story, she said. Because I'm a candidate, that's relatable. I'm a regular person, and the issues I've worked on have really been fighting to make their, her constituents' lives better. She said Washington doesn't often see representatives with the life experiences she brings. Patterson has been open about her mother's decades-long struggle with opioid addiction. As a mother of a young son, Patterson said she wants to be a role model of what a strong woman can be. Contrary to wanting to take on less after having a child, she said she feels that stepping up and running is even more urgent because the stakes for the future and the state couldn't be higher. It is difficult. It is a huge commitment. Public service is something that you live and breathe, she said. In my job as a state senator and as a state representative, I learned that you just have to carve out that time for the people that you love as well. 
As for the prospect of running as a Democrat when Republicans may well reclaim the majority, Pedersen said she's undaunted. She said she'll travel the district, getting to know residents in the newly incorporated areas in a much more comprehensive way, listening to voters that about their issues and concerns. Climate change and wildfire mitigation are a couple of important issues she said she wants to tackle. Issues that are also important to residents of mountain areas now included in the district. But it's not just the mountain communities that are going to be affected by this climate change. She said, not even the suburbs are going to be safe if we don't act. For now, she's focusing on building her team and winning in the general election. Just two days after her announcement, she'd racked up an impressive number of endorsements and is building a war chest through donations. In an interview about his not seeking re-election, Perlmutter himself called her a fierce campaigner that has the ability to win. But Pedersen said she's not taking anything for granted. This is going to be a very competitive race, and there's no time to waste, she said. Cowboy Poetry Gathering wraps up on a high note. Perennial event returns to delighted audiences in a packed auditorium by Deborah Grigsby. Lovers of the American West were treated to a hearty helping of cowboy poetry, storytelling, and songs as the Colorado Cowboy Poetry Gathering got underway after a two-year hiatus at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, Colorado. Eight of the most prominent entertainers in the business gathered to reminisce and celebrate the life of the humble cowboy. The event attracted poets and songwriters from as far away as Australia and Canada, as well as a packed house for each performance. The January 15th, 16th event included various workshops on everything from humor to songwriting to harmonica playing. While the exact origins of cowboy poetry remain a point of discussion, most agree it dates back to the late 19th century cattle drives of the early West. Long days and cool nights made life on the trail challenging. Cowboys and ranchers gathered around an evening campfire to tell stories, sing songs, and reflect on the day's journey. Established in 1986, the Colorado Cowboy Gathering was, performed, was formed to celebrate cowboy life and culture. The performances rekindled life on the range as award-winning poets, singers, musicians, and yodelers recount the joys and hardships of the Old West. GPD, one dead in early morning blaze. Neighbors say little known about the victim. Quote, kept to himself, by Deborah Grigsby. An early morning fire in Golden has claimed the life of one individual, according to Golden Fire and police officials. Fire crews responded to a fire in the 17,000 block of West 17th Place, a residential area near South Table Mountain. According to neighbors, fire crews arrived around 5.30 a.m. to find the home engulfed in flames. Longtime neighbor and Golden resident Gil Brill said he was awakened by guys beating on the door. Quote, I got up and was kind of in a daze, he said. And then I saw the fire. From what I could see, there were flames coming up from the highest part of the house. End quote. 
He said the street was lined with emergency response vehicles. Marty Quinn, who has lived in the same neighborhood for 11 years, said little was known about the home's occupant. Quote, I did not know him at all, but I always thought the house was unoccupied, he said. Quinn went on to say the house appeared to always be in disrepair. Quote, disrepair, missing shingles and gutters falling off. Didn't know what the situation was, but it just seemed like the house was falling down around whoever was living there. End quote. Quinn added that there were multiple Volvo station wagons on the premises that were filled to the top with newspapers. He said it was when one car was filled, another would appear. While Brill said he was not close to the victim, he knew he worked nights at the post office and rarely had visitors. People would harass him, said Brill. Some would throw rocks through his windshield of his car. Brill also said that the victim would enter his home through the garage. He speculates that the fire was contained. No other structures were damaged. Quote, It's sad that he was in the house when it burned. I think that's terrible, Quinn said. My heart goes out to his family and friends. The fire is still under investigation. Arvada rallies support for Marshall Fire victims. Community Raises Thousands of Dollars by Jennifer LeDuc. If the Marshall Fire spread panic as it burned, it spread hope as it smoldered. As the fire licked the outlying limits of West Arvada and incinerated neighborhoods in ill-fated nearby zip codes, hearts gasped and the community rallied on a dime. Arvada Councilor Lauren Simpson recalled the evening the fire was so close that pre-evacuation orders were issued as the skyline glowed red. There was just this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, she said. Simpson and fellow counselor Lisa Smith texted back and forth. By the time the pre-evacuation orders were lifted for Candelas and Leyden Rock that night, the duo was devising ways to help. On the morning of December 31st, Knowing that water, clothing, and hygiene items were the three things most needed after a disaster, Simpson and Smith posted on social media requesting donations be dropped off at Smith's driveway. We were thinking we'd get a few items, Simpson said. Within three hours, Lisa's two-car garage was filled. They realized, despite the hundreds of families who lost everything, they had to cap the donation drive. Responding to disasters is what Smith does. She is a fellowship program manager with Team Rubicon, a disaster response team that deploys military veteran volunteers to disasters throughout the world. As veterans, Smith explained Team Rubicon volunteers have experience in war zones and responding to chaos. More than once, witnesses have described the Marshall Fire rubble of looking just like that, a war zone. Deployed in her backyard on New Year's Eve, the Rubicon volunteers would start by getting water, food, and supplies to firefighters and responders on the ground. Reporting to the Boulder Office of Emergency Management, Smith saw towers of donations of bottled water. Between the donations in her garage and the outpouring of collections already being taken across the front range, the councilwomen decided on a gift card drive and hopefully bridge the gap to replace what material donations don't always cover. 
The initiative was swiftly funneled through the Arvada Resiliency Task Force, created to provide to members of the community supports and resources to navigate the pandemic. On January 3rd, gift card collection boxes were distributed to locations throughout the city, and the drive was shared on social media channels. Simpson reached out to a short list of officials from other cities, asking them to join the drive. Wheat Ridge said yes. Denver and Edgewater got on board. Word spread. North Glen and Thornton officials contacted her. They were in. Eventually, Westminster, Broomfield, Golden, and Centennial, a total of 10 cities, were collecting gift cards, and places like Resolute Brewing Company put out collection boxes. The patio of the brewing company on Highway 72 overlooks the Candela's neighborhood to the west and the Marshall Fire Burn area to the north. Green AstroTurf still lies in heaps on the patio. Wind gusts ripped it up from the cement patio slab on December 30th. The 70-pound picnic tables were tipped over. Even before the fire started, the winds were so strong the decision was made the brewery would remain closed for the day. In the days since, the staff at Resolute say the brewery has become a place for some deeper conversations. Beyond the football scores and idle chit-chat, first responders are unwinding, replaying, and processing the fires they battled. There are stories of flames so intense the fire trucks were catching on fire, or accounts of taking cover from the inferno behind a Home Depot, only to look up and see the building on fire, or the sounds of gas lines and propane grill tanks exploding, glass windows popping and replaying videos taken on the scene not shown on newscasts. It's clear the staff at Resolute feels their jobs go beyond just pouring pints. In all honesty, what we do even better is support the community that supports us, said Johnny Eves, a beer tender for Resolute. It's why we love working in the industry. On Saturday afternoon, Simpson stopped by Resolute and began to tally the gift cards collected between their two locations. After spreading out a box of gift cards, she calculated nearly $1,500 raised by the Centennial location. The Arvada customers contributed over $4,000. In addition to collecting gift cards, Resolute has committed to donating a dollar from every pint they sell for the month of January. Eves does some quick math and estimates that they sell about 800 pints a week at the Arvada location. Scores of business have taken their own initiatives to help. The Bluegrass Lounge is donating individual and family meals to those displaced. Red Silo Coffee is raising money through sales of their Mexico Chiapas coffee, donating 100% of the retail value of each bag sold in January to the Boulder County Wildfire Fund. At Great Harvest Bread, the Arvada franchise owners coordinated with other nearby franchise locations and donated 10% of proceeds on January 11th, raising nearly $3,000. As a franchise as a whole, our mission is giving generously, explained Amy Charlton, who co-owns the Arbata Cafe with her mother, Mickey Nelson. We hire and fire by it. Mike Ferretti has been the chairman and CEO of Great Harvest Bread for 21 years. Although it gives him goosebumps when he sees the company's mission statement in action, he wasn't surprised at how quickly the front-range shops responded in the wake of the fire. This area is among the most generous and loving in the country. They live our mission in 
they live our mission statement, he said. Running fast to serve others is more than part of our customer service line. It's broader than that. It's a mindset of servitude, and you see that in this group in spades. On Sunday afternoon, Simpson had collected 1,240 gift cards from more than 20 locations across four counties, raising a total of $62,173 within two weeks. It's hard to describe how I feel. I feel grateful and so appreciative of our community and the goodness in it, Simpson wrote in a text. There's an old Mr. Rogers saying, Look for the helpers. And in times like this, we see that the helpers are all around us. People step up in ways big and small, and that's how you know it's all going to be okay. End quote. Arvada King Super's union workers join picket line, share perspectives. On the second day of King Super's grocery store workers striking against their employer, the parking lot at the 58th and Independence location was more empty than usual for an afternoon. The gas pumps were off, and about a dozen of the store's employees waved to cars from the sidewalk, wearing picket signs and protesting after contract negotiations between the Kroger-owned company and UFCW Local 7 Union representatives failed earlier in the month. Some vehicles driving by honked in solidarity. One passenger in a pickup truck shouted, Get back to work! An employee who asked to remain anonymous said after getting hours cut across departments, stalled or mediocre pay increases and starting pay insufficient for hiring new employees at a living wage, she and her co-workers wanted to be, quote, respected, protected, and paid. Employed with King Supers for more than 11 years, she manages her department but is paid hourly and often works 50 hours for a week due to scheduling gaps from unfilled positions. I joked that I was going to give my kids a picture of myself for Christmas because I was working so much they forgot what I looked like, she said. With four children between ages 2 and 10, the Arvada resident said she barely makes ends meet, even with overtime. I make too much for food stamps, but not enough for living, she said. Inside the store, the aisles were quiet. The self-checkout scanners were closed. There were two cashiers, but no customers in line, and no security guards evident. The handful of shoppers had the place to themselves, and most were seniors. A dad shopping with his young son said he crossed the picket line because he simply needed groceries for his family. Another man picking out produce who declined to give his name said he needed dog food and had no qualms crossing the picket line. Again, he just needed groceries. The deli and butcher counter were both dark. Packages of fresh, boneless beef steaks were piled at the end of a meat cooler marked down with a reduced sticker because of the approaching sell-by date. In the dairy department, shelves were being stocked by a salaried assistant manager who traveled from another store to help during the strike. Despite rows of gallons of milk virtually untouched, he explained the shelves would stay stocked and the produce rotated. It was only day two of the strike, and as it dragged on, the customers would come back. People need food, he said. 
Once an hourly employee himself, he empathized with the striking workers, but said he believed the upper management, quote, wanted everyone to come back to work making a living wage. I'd say it's sincere, end quote. Back outside, the picketing continued. Tired after showing up to the sidewalk before sunrise, the striking department manager said despite feeling replaceable, she still felt loyalty to her job. I love what I do, and I care about my customers. And in order to keep my department to the standards we have, I need people to come to work for me, she said, looking over to the other employees on the sidewalk picket line. And these people, well, they're my family. Blood supplies running low. Donations are needed now in all regions by Thelma Grimes. The American Red Cross has been sending up the red flag, stressing that there is a nationwide blood shortage and Colorado is no different. In fact, along the front range, hospitals are managing but are one major tragedy away from danger. Dr. Kyle Annan, Director of Transfusion Services and Patient Blood Management for Children's Hospital Colorado, said their blood supplies are not as low as those being reported by the American Red Cross and Vitalant, a national independent nonprofit blood services provider. We definitely have lower supplies than normal, Annan said, but we are one bad emergency away from getting into some real trouble. And said CHC, which has hospitals along the front range and throughout the state, has been lucky to keep a flow of regular donors, but she is getting more concerned as the Omicron variant of COVID continues to spread. It's not today or tomorrow that I worry about, and it said. I worry about our supplies in the next few weeks. As Omicron continues to hit us, we are going to start getting in trouble. It really is not just about today, we have to keep blood supplies stable for the future. End quote. Caitlin Ballinger, the American Red Cross Regional Communications Manager for Colorado and Wyoming, said while the national organization does not directly collect blood in the state, they do provide blood to 11 hospitals in Colorado, including Denver Health, Swedish Medical Center, and the University of Colorado Hospital. In total, the American Red Cross supplies 40% of the nation's blood, Ballinger said. Because of the continued shortage, Ballinger said the American Red Cross has had to limit blood product distributions to hospitals. At times, as much as one quarter of hospital blood needs are not being met, she said. Seasonal blood shortages are not uncommon in the U.S. However, what makes the situation Unique is the many compounding factors. COVID-19, severe winter weather, supply chain and staffing challenges, and holidays at play, Ballinger said. Quote, these challenges have resulted in the lowest national blood inventories in more than a decade. What is even more challenging at this time is that the blood supply levels have remained at historically low levels for now nearly four months. By talent with nine Colorado blood donation centers is also seeing a de- continued decrease in blood supplies. The national program also hosts blood drives throughout the region, including through partnerships with organizations such as the Highlands Ranch Community Association. Brooke Way, communications manager for By Talent, said there are several contributing factors that have led to the nationwide shortage of blood. 
In 2020 and 2021, Wei said Vitalant was forced to cancel 500 blood drives due to COVID and, like other industries, staff shortages. Quote, we are now trying to make up for all those lost units we could have collected, Wei said. In Colorado, Vitalant blood supplies matter because they provide units to more than 75 hospitals statewide, including Sky Ridge Medical Center in Lone Tree. Linda Watson, the hospital's VP of Marketing and Public Affairs, said they work directly with Vitalant to host quarterly blood drives, including an upcoming event on February 16th. Watson said they are getting plenty of participation in the drives, noting that they had a full slate of donors for the January 10th drive they recently held. However, while blood drives do help replenish supplies and instead they do not always result in the most In the type of blood hospitals need most. Type O blood is needed the most, she said. In recent weeks, Ballinger said the Red Cross has had less than a one-day supply of type O blood and platelets, critical blood products for those in need. The general standard, Ballinger explained, is to have a five-day supply of all blood types on hand at all times. Quote, the Red Cross works with hospitals around the clock to meet the needs of patients, but blood products distributions to hospitals are currently outpacing the number of blood donations coming in, Ballinger said. More donations are needed now, especially platelet and type O, which is the most needed blood group by hospitals. To donate blood, and said residents do not have to wait for a special blood drive. Hospitals and donation centers throughout the Denver metro area can collect blood regularly throughout the year. States' taxable home values could skyrocket. Forecast predicts up to 20% increases in 2023, but effect on owners is complicated. By Daniel Ducasi, The Colorado Sun. The taxable value of Colorado homes is expected to rise dramatically in 2023, according to the most recent forecast by the General Assembly's economists. And not just in the white-hot front range and mountain resort real estate markets. As families flee high, high housing prices in those areas, they're pushing up prices on Denver's fringes and in smaller metro areas. Rapid increases in home prices are expected all over the state, including some rural areas that don't usually have that kind of appreciation. Greg Sobetsky, Deputy Chief Economist for the Nonpartisan Legislative Council staff, told state lawmakers who sit on the Joint Budget Committee last month. He also said legislative economists have noticed sizable value increases for vacant land in mountain communities, which are classified as non-residential property, but are appreciating similarly to residential property. Increasing home values on the market affect assessed property values and are a critical source of tax revenue for local governments. Sebetsky was updating the influential state committee on current assessed property values and predictions for the future because they can have a big impact on state spending, especially in education. Local property tax revenue is the first source of funding for local school districts and key to determining how much state aid is provided to each district. 
Districts receive state funding to make up the difference between the state's per-pupil funding requirements and the local share of funding. As local governments collect more property tax revenue to spend on schools, the state's education spending obligations decrease, leaving lawmakers with a choice about how much state cash they want to pony up. If the local share of K-12 education spending increases, state lawmakers could maintain the level of spending in previous years, boosting K-12 spending overall or reduce the state contribution to use elsewhere. And because there are so many factors that determine how much an individual taxpayer will owe and how much revenue local governments actually collect, it's hard to say what the increased values will mean for the average homeowner or the state budget. Local assessors reevaluate property values for tax purposes every other year. This year's reassessment, which looked at the property value increases between June 30th, 2018 and June 30th, 2020, resulted in an 11.3% increase in residential assessed values. Non-residential property values decreased by 1.6%. Taxable property value homes for homes are expected to decrease 1% in 2022, but then jump 19.5% when they are reassessed in 2023 to nearly $84 billion from $70.3 billion. 83 school districts are expected to see total taxable property values increase by more than 15%, with 43 of those districts seeing growth greater than 15%. Most of those districts are along the Front Range and in mountain communities. Slower growth is expected for many school districts in southern parts of the state, like the San San Luis Valley and the Southwest Mountains around Durango. The forecast increase is, quote, consistent with home price increases during the pandemic in Colorado and nationally, owing to supply constraints, increasing costs for building materials and labor, low interest rates, and elevated household savings. According to the report from nonpartisan staff for the Colorado Legislative Council, the report notes that increasing housing costs, especially in the metro Denver area, are causing families with school-aged children to move to the fringes smaller metropolitan areas elsewhere in Colorado or out of the state altogether. It's affecting the mountain region as well, where high housing costs have spurred families to save money by moving to more affordable places outside of resort communities. It's a domino effect that pushes up housing prices in places that were previously more affordable. The Legislative Council staff report explained that the slight decrease forecast for next year's home values and an expected 5.3% increase in 2024 are the result of changes to new home values, how home values are assessed under Senate Bill 293. That measure, which passed last legislative session, temporarily reduces property assessment rates for the 2022-23 tax years. Here are some other takeaways from the report. The Colorado Springs area is likely to see continued appreciation in home prices as buyers look outside of the Denver area for more affordable houses. The Denver metro area is also likely to see assessed values of homes pick back up after a slight dip in 2022, with faster appreciation in northern, eastern, and southern suburbs and fringes. Home prices are expected to rise in eastern plain towns on the fringes of front-range metro areas. 
The Legislative Council staff also see the strong home price appreci- appreciation on the horizon in Larimer and Weld counties and noted a recent acceleration in new residential construction there. Over the over on the western slope, legislative economists expect strong home price appreciation across the region, especially in Montrose, Ouray, and San Miguel counties. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Littleton Schools study could help in fight against youth suicide. Research links school culture to well-being underscores the need for resources by Robert Tan. A two-year study focusing on the relationship between social environments and youth suicide could provide a, quote, partial roadmap for schools and communities looking to improve the promotion of mental health, according to its lead researcher. The Littleton Public Schools LPS district was part of the national study. The findings of the Social Worlds and Youth Wellbeing Study are detailed in a 66-page report published in October that caps two years of research at four LPS high schools. Leading the study is Dr. Anna Mueller, a professor of sociology at Indiana University. Mueller said schools are at the forefront of suicide prevention but need bolstered safety nets and resources to ensure students' well-being. Schools really are taking on a world of burdens that kids are facing, Mueller said. We're having schools do more and more to support our children with less and less resources. Through 192 interviews with students, staff, parents, and mental health providers, as well as more than 2,000 surveys of parents, guardians, and staff, Mueller and her team identified mental health pain points for students and the gaps in school safety nets. The study comes after years of tragedy for LPS. A 2013 shooting at Arapahoe High School left student Claire Davis and her killer dead. At the same high school, several students have since committed suicide, including two that were back-to-back in 2018. It's left the district eager to engage more in mental health promotion. Quote, I think those tragedies and challenging experiences had really primed the district to take mental health more seriously, perhaps ahead of many districts across the United States, Mueller said. But LPS and its community still have room to improve, said Mueller, who added that while much of the study's findings relate to aspects of LPS, the solutions it presents are universal. All districts need this research, she said, because there's this tremendous gap in our understanding of how to prevent suicide and even prevent other types of tragedies like school shootings. The study comes as teen suicides continue to climb in Colorado and across the country. According to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, rates of suicide for those aged 10 to 24 increased nearly 60% between 2007 and 2018. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the crisis with hospital visits for mental health-related emergencies among those aged 10 to 17 up 31% in 2020, according 
compared to the year before, according to the CDC. Colorado has seen a similar trend. In 2020, there were 213 suicides among those aged 10 to 24, a record high since, 20, since 2004, according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Making mental health a priority of schooling. Mueller's study found that one of the main drivers of teenage mental health problems was feeling pressure to meet expectations as students. This mostly came from parents, students said, who hold their children to high standards, given the LPS district's reputation for academic success. But this push for straight A's and high test scores can create an unhealthy strain on students. Well-being, the study found, and can leave a teenager's mental, social, and emotional health pushed to the wayside. If we want to support children's mental health, we need to make that a priority of schooling, Mueller said. LPS students described, quote, piles of homework, no free time, and expectations to juggle multiple AP or IB classes, according to the study. One student interviewed said his high school is known for having a toxic culture, but he chose to attend it over others for its apparent academic rigor in hopes it would pay off with acceptance to a good college. The study also found that many students who knew people who died by suicide also dealt with drug addiction, something the study is something the study said, quote, is often used as a mechanism to relieve the pressure teens face in and out of school. Definitely, quote, definitely drugs, drugs, drugs play a huge part in my friend's suicides, one student told researchers, quote, and no one wants to acknowledge. Wants to acknowledge that almost every death has had to do with drug use, end quote. Nate Thompson, Director of Social, Emotional, and Behavioral Services at LPS, said the study has shown that abuse needs to be a bigger part of the mental health conversation for teens. Quote, substance abuse is a big part of this mental health crisis, and you don't hear that very often, he said. Part of that is because it's not easy for any parent who has had a kid who struggles with mental health crisis <clears throat> and also addiction to say that. But kids are saying, hey, We've got to talk about this. To combat this, the study calls for schools to facilitate cultures where youths feel they can talk to adults about their issues, something that Lena Heilman, Suicide Prevention Strategies Manager at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, CDPHE, said was crucial for saving lives. The research is clear that young people who feel connected really are less likely to feel suicidal attempt suicide, and die by suicide, Heilman said. And the role of trusted adults is key in youth suicide prevention. According to the study, a school should promote mental, social, and emotional development as much as it does academics. Researchers observed that in schools that promoted all aspects of growth, students were more willing to tell staff about serious suicidal thoughts and were able to ask for help. Alternatively, at schools that focused more on academic development, researchers observed a more limited view from staff who questioned why certain students were struggling, framing issues around a lack of motivation rather than the root causes for a student's mental health struggles.
The study also points to the need for schools to make all students feel a sense of belonging. Typically, schools will celebrate their highest achievers, such as valedictorians and student-athletes, while well-intentioned spotlighting just these students can lead to unintentional feelings of isolation from other students who feel they do not fit the mold of their school, according to the study. One high school student told researchers, quote, if you're not an athlete, then the administration makes it pretty clear that it does not care as much, end quote. This can lead to a school culture in which students feel less supported by staff, in turn, may be more reluctant to talk about suicide and seek mental help, the study said. Another student, whom researchers gave the pseudonym of Timothy, dealt directly with an exclusionary culture at his school, which led to bullying, according to the study. Timothy said he became depressed but did not feel comfortable talking to school staff. But after his parents forced him to tell the school what was happening, he began to develop a supportive relationship with several administrators and now feels he can go to them whenever he needs help. Quote, This matches our broader observations at this school that staff really care about student well-being, though they do not always have sufficient tools to provide support, the study said. Families play a pivotal role in prevention. A teenager's parents or guardians can have a major effect on how equipped a school is to identify and respond to students with mental health struggles, the study found. But while the majority of LPS families felt the schools had some responsibility for suicide prevention, few said they would actually ask school staff for help. Of the more than 1,200 parents and guardians surveyed, 78% strongly agree that schools should play a role in preventing suicide, but only 29% said they would turn to school staff with concerns about a child's mental health. Additionally, 97% agreed that schools should intervene when a student is in mental health crisis, and 83% felt it was very important for schools to include mental health in their curriculum. Yet, when it came to disclosing a child's suicidal crisis to the school, parents and guardians who have faced that situation were nearly split, with 48% saying they did not tell the school. For Mueller, this finding is the crux of the problem when it comes to the lack of support schools have. Quote, families and maybe even broader communities haven't quite figured out what it means for a school to take on at least partial responsibility for suicide prevention, Mueller said. And so we end up with these tensions when it comes to, would I ask for help from a school? We're a little less certain, end quote. By not telling school staff about a child's mental health issues, the safety nets around suicide prevention can be severely weakened, said Mueller, whose study quotes one staff member who told researchers, quote, parents need to be a part of the solution if anything is going to change for the better, end quote. The reasons for families' hesitations vary. Most parents and guardians surveyed over 90% said they worried to some degree about their child's mental health, but said they were more likely to turn to therapists, other family members, and even friends for help rather than school staff. For families who sought help for their child, about 67% said they faced barriers. The main reason was a child's resistance to help, followed by lack of access to treatment, lack of knowledge about how to get help, and an inability to afford 
treatment. Thompson said the district has ways of helping with some of those barriers. This includes on-site therapists for middle and high schoolers, as well as a network of more than 200 mental health care providers that the district can connect families to. The district's Mental Health Foundation will also pay for services for families in need. It's why dialogue between families and staff is all too important, Thompson said. Quote, the vast majority of people know that schools are good places to get help. They just they may just not know exactly what schools can offer. Thompson said, schools didn't do all this stuff when we were growing up. Schools do have resources, a lot of resources, and can connect you to even more. Schools can't do it alone. While Mueller's study pinpoints schools as an essential pillar for suicide prevention, the work cannot fall on staff alone, it said. Along with families, other aspects of teenagers' social communities, such as mental health care providers, pediatricians, and faith-based organizations, must step up to do their part in providing safe spaces for young people to express their struggles and needs, Mueller said. This, in turn, will alleviate some of the pressure on school staff who Mueller said are already stretched too thin. Quote, I spent a lot of hours sitting in the waiting rooms of school counseling offices. They are so outrageously overworked, she said. It breaks my heart a little bit to see that we're asking these people to just go above and beyond and work such long hours. End quote. Heilman, the CDPHE suicide prevention manager, echoed this sentiment. Quote, Suicide prevention is everyone's business. We all have a role to play, she said. For young people, schools are one key organization, but families are important. Youth-serving organizations are important. Healthcare settings are important. So we really want everyone to be involved in supporting youth suicide prevention because we all have to be, end quote. Another source of pain for schools is state funding, which remains low, particularly in states like Colorado. Mueller's study recommends increases in school-based therapists and social workers, as well as across-the-board mental health and suicide prevention training for all staff. But that comes with the cost. Quote, I do think that the funding issue is a really serious part of the challenges that limit our ability to effectively support students' well-being in schools and thus prevent suicide, Mueller said. So I would really strongly urge politicians to think about that. Still, the reality remains that schools, according to the study, are one of the best positioned places in a young person's community for identifying their mental health needs and providing support. Quote, kids spend the majority of their waking hours in the school building, Mueller said. Finding Acceptance in Sordid Lives Coming Attractions by Clark Reader There's unlucky timing, and then there's starting a theater company not long before a global pandemic. Such is the case with the Wheat Ridge Theater Company. But the company and its founder, Mauro Garcia, have embraced alternatives, spaces as storytelling sites during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. The company performed in restaurants and breweries and even did drive-through theater. Now they're giving something else a try. Theater in a theater. Quote, We need to start having a sense of returning back to normal for the theater community and the audience, Garcia said. I believe in supporting creative people. It is just so discouraging when things stopped and we need an outlet to express what we have to say. 
The Wheat Ridge Theater Com- Company is bringing Del Shore's comedy, Sorted Lives, to the John Hand Theater, 7653 East First Place in the Colorado Free University campus at Lowry from January 21st through February 13th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays and 2.30 p.m. on Sundays. All audience members will be required to wear a mask during the performance, and attendees are required to show proof of COVID vaccine or the result of a negative test taken within less than 24 hours before the performance. The show follows a family of gathering to a family gathering to mourn the death of their matriarch and follows her three children as they journey to acceptance. The cast includes Selena A. Nalmoff, Christine Murphy Davidson, Mike Kinker, and Bob Perlman. While the show zeroes in on LGBTQIA plus issues, its message of, into- of tolerance and welcome a- applies to anyone who feels like an outsider. Quote, I like plays that have a little shock value in a good way. Plays that even make you a little uncomfortable. Plays that you can't forget, Garcia said. This show is a little bit of farce, but in reality, there's a lot of layers for audiences to explore. End quote. That exploration is one of the main goals for all the work the company embarks on, Garcia added. Audiences so often think of theater as a place to explore their own feelings and topics that intrigue them, but it's equally important for those on the stage and behind the scenes. Quote, this is my form of expression. My only voice is theater. It's my way of saying something is not right, that this is something people should pay attention to, she said. I'm very grateful to the audiences who are taking the step of returning to theater and participating with us because there's nothing like live theater. For tickets and information, visit wheatridgetheatercompany.ticketspice.com slash sorted hyphen lives. The Wizard of Oz lands at pace. It is difficult to imagine a more traditionally American fable than L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. In its various iterations, most famously the film, the story always manages to capture something honest about the quest for the self. All of this makes it the perfect tale to tell to begin a new year, which is just what the Parker Arts Culture and Events Center is doing. Pace's 20,000 Pikes Peak Avenue production of The Wizard of Oz is running from January 21st through February 13th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays and 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. This production features the iconic musical score from the MGM film, so get tickets for this classic at parkerarts.org slash event slash the dash wizard dash of dash Oz. Explore the world of Charles Parson. Charles Parson is one of the most talented and well-known artists in the Denver metro area, and his work has been showcased all over town. His latest exhibit is the Charles Parson Solo Exhibit, which runs through Saturday, February 26th at the Curtis Center for the Arts, 2349 East Orchard Road in Greenwood Village. According to provided information, the exhibit features Parson's intimate to large-scale drawings and smaller interior sculptures. Quote, These recent works will include steel, plexiglass, and stone, abstract sculptures along with the dimensional drawings from the Landscape Scores series, developed during his recent role as a resource artist at Redline Art Center. End quote. It also also focuses on his current Near Far 
series. For more information, visit greenwoodvillage.com slash 1247 slash Curtis dash center dash four dash the dash arts. And Clark's concert of the week, Rakim at the Roxy Theater. If you're a rap fan, you're a fan of Rakim. Even if it's not a direct fan thing, the rappers you love can almost all be traced back to the music made by Rakim and his partner Eric B. The duo made four albums from the mid-80s to the late 90s, and Rakim went on making music after they split. Nowadays, Rakim is considered one of the best to ever do it. The Source magazine ranked him as number one on their list of top 50 lyricists of all time. In 2012, an album paid in full is recognized as one of the greatest achievements in the genre. So, when an absolute legend like Rakim comes to town, attention and respect must be paid. He'll be performing at the Roxy Theater, 2549 Welton Street in Denver at 7 p.m. on January 21st. Get tickets at theroxydenver.com slash event slash 385088. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for joining us for the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock.